As we celebrate Good Friday, we're once again reminded of Christ's crucifixion and death. And I say celebrate because we're celebrating. We're not mourning the Christ of death, uh, the, the death of Christ. In recent years, there was a movie by Mel Gibson called The Passion of Christ. I don't know how many of you ever saw that movie. But many went to that movie and were so emotionally charged because of what Christ went through. They were mourning for Christ. But Christ says, don't mourn for me. Mourn for yourselves. For this is the reason why I came. As they were mourning for Christ on the Via Della Rosa, there were professional mourners, these women, and Christ said, don't mourn for me, mourn for yourselves, because he knew judgment was coming. And we are to mourn over our sin, for that's the reason why Christ came. Christ was never the victim. And as we celebrate Good Friday, and I, once again, I emphasize celebrate. It's a joyous thing. You know, I've been to church services where the lights were dim, as if it was a funeral. It's not a funeral, it's a celebration. And of course, the epitome of that celebration is when Pastor Brian gets up and preaches on Sunday morning on Resurrection Sunday. But we recall to mind what the eternal Son of God had to endure. He had to leave the glories of heaven and become man. The brutal persecution throughout his life, from the time he was a baby to the time he went to the cross and suffered and died. He had to endure the whippings with bone and metal at the end of the whip. We think of a whip as, you know, something we see on these Western movies. You know, this whip had bone and metal at the end of it that it cut Christ's skin right off that they some theologians believe that they saw his organs. He had to endure the slaps and the punches in the face. This is the eternal son of God. The one who created the heavens and the earth. Being spit upon. The crown of thorns pushed on his head. The nails driven through his hands and feet. The sword thrust through his side. The ridicule. And worst of all, the abandonment from his father that resulted from the outpouring of wrath of God on him as our sin bearer. We, we remember the anguish cry, if we're familiar with any of the New Testament, of the eternal son of God when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what Jesus Christ had to endure. And why? Well, it would take eternity to tell you Why? However, I'll give you two passages of scripture that will give us a glimpse of the answer why. John three sixteen and 17, a very familiar passage of scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul said it rightly, 5.21. He said, for our sake, he made him to be sin. He made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. And here's the purpose. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. 
It was God's determined will from all eternity that sent Jesus to the cross that saved you and saved me. It's called the sovereignty of God. Please stand with me to the reading of God's word. Who has believed what he has done, what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, meaning Jesus, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's all of us. Every single last one of us, we all went astray like sheep. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. And this is the scripture we're going to use tonight. This is the text, this verse that I'm going to look at. And I want you to look at it with me. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many, and makes intercession For the transgressors. Verse 10 again. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And one other scripture I want to read. After the the apostle Peter and John healed the lame beggar. And were questioned and also threatened. By the hostile Jewish leaders of Israel. They were finally released. And And then Peter and John went and told the others. Their friends. What, had, what they had said to them. And all together, the whole company of, that Peter and John were with raised their voices and they said this, Sovereign Lord, who made, the heaven, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, 
and he's quoting Psalm 2 here, Why did the the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers would gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And this is another scripture I want us to look at. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take. Two scriptures. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to death. And to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It's talking about the sovereignty of God and the crucifixion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your sovereign will. We thank you that it actually brings comfort to our hearts to know that you are in full control. You are in full control of our destiny from eternity past. There was never a time you stopped and said, I must send Jesus to save these people. You had it in your mind and heart through all eternity. Help us to grasp the magnitude And the glorious salvation this is. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to read a story. I read this story once before, but I think it will drive home the point. There was once a bridge that spanned a large river. During most of the day, the bridge sat with its length running up and down the river, paralleled with the banks allowing ships to pass through freely on both sides of the bridge. But at certain times each day, a train would come along and and the bridge would be turned sideways across the river, allowing the the train to cross it. A switchman sat in the shack on one side of the river where he operated the controls to turn the bridge and lock it into place as the train crossed. One evening as the switchman was waiting for the last train, excuse me, of the last train of the day to come, he looked off into the distance through the dimming twilight and caught sight of the train lights. He stepped onto the control and waited until the train was within a prescribed distance. Then he was to turn the bridge. He turned the bridge into position, but to his horror he found the the locking control did not work. If the bridge was not securely in position, it would cause the train to jump the track and go crashing into the river. This would be a passenger train with many people aboard. He left the train, oh, he left the bridge, turned across the river, and hurried across the bridge to the other side of the river where there was a lever switch so he could hold to operate the lock manually. He would have, he would have to hold the lever firmly back as the train crossed. He could hear the rumble of the train now, and he took hold of the lever and leaned backward to apply his weight to it, locking the bridge. He kept applying the pressure to keep the mechanism locked. Many lives depended on this man's strength. Then coming across the bridge from a direction of his control, of his control shack, he heard a sound that made his blood run cold. Daddy, where are you? His four-year-old son was crossing the bridge to look for him. His first impulse was to cry out to his child, run, run. But the train was too close. The tiny legs would never make it across the bridge in time. The man almost left his lever to snatch up his son and carry him to safety. But he realized 
he could not get back to the level in time if he saved his son. Either many people on the train or his son must die. He took but a moment to make a decision. The train sped safely and swiftly on its way and no one aboard was even aware of the tiny broken body thrown mercilessly into the river by, by the onrushing train. Nor were they aware of the pitiful figure of the sobbing man still clinging to the locking lever long after the train had passed. They did not see him walking home more slowly than ever, as, more slowly than he ever walked to tell his wife how their son had brutally died. That's a very moving story, a very touching story. How this man sacrificed his son for all the people on the train. And here's my proposition for this message tonight. God sovereignly willed his only begotten son to be killed so you and I could live eternally. And one of the very disturbing things in Christianity in their understanding today is the lack of the understanding of the sovereignty of God. And that's what I want to focus on tonight. The sovereignty of God in the crucifix. Many say they believe in God, that they believe he's sovereign. But if you dig a little deeper in their theology, you will only find that their understanding of God being sovereign is severely flawed. God is only sovereign in understanding, not what the word of God says. I was one of those people who, as a Christian, failed to understand how sovereign God really is. And there's so many teachings and sermons out there. At the end of the day, the teaching and the sermons... After listening to them, you come out with, man is really sovereign. God is sovereign, yeah, but man has some sovereignty. God is not as sovereign as they say they believe. Let's define sovereignty first and then see how God's sovereignty is applied to the crucifixion and our salvation. Sovereignty or sovereign, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology says God... God's exercise of power over his creation. An evangelical dictionary of theology says it like this. God is king, supreme ruler, and lawgiver of the entire universe. Now I'm going to give you John Verdi's definition. God does what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants. For example, we know he's sovereign in creation. He created the heavens and earth. Why? Because he wanted to. We know that everything he created was what? For his glory. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So we see, whether it's the universe or us, God created everything for his glory. We also can't help but to see God's rule and authority in creation. We also read about his sovereignty in the Bible. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Romans eleven thirty six. after Paul gives us great doxology, after all this, or after, after he gives his whole thesis on, on salvation, justification by faith, he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And certainly we should understand 
He is sovereign in salvation, in your salvation, in my salvation. Psalm 3.8, the psalmist said, salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to you, it doesn't belong to me, it belongs to him. Paul understood and taught this clearly. There was no doubt in Paul's mind. In Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 6, Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Even as He chose us, we didn't choose Him, He chose us. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He meaning God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now that sounds like God initiated it, and God gave it to us. But the shocking reality is God is sovereign, His his sovereign will and the death of His Son, which made salvation possible for you and me. Two points I want to bring out tonight. God willed to to have Jesus killed. God actually willed to have Jesus killed. And two, God willed to save you. Let me start off with a question. And you've heard this before. Who killed Jesus? Okay, did did the Jewish leaders kill Jesus? I mean, they were the troublemakers of Israel. They were the ones who got the whole crowd to scream out, crucify him, crucify him. They planned, they plotted. Matthew 26, verses 3 and 4. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. So they were the ones that perpetrated this plan. Or, maybe you're thinking, the Jews killed Jesus. Not so much the leaders, but the Jews. After all, Luke 23, verses 20 and 21, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, this is the Jewish people, crucify him, crucify him. And if you read Acts 2, verses 22 and 23 in Peter's great sermon at Pentecost, he accused the Jews of putting to death Jesus of Nazareth. So yeah, we could look at the Jews and say, they crucified Jesus. What about the Romans? I mean, we we believe the Romans killed Jesus. After all, they were the ones who actually carried out the crucifixion. Matthew 27, 35, and and when they, the Roman soldiers, had crucified him, They divided his garments among them by casting lots. So we know that the Romans actually carried out the physical crucifying of Jesus Christ. Or maybe we're thinking, did Satan kill Jesus? I mean, when man sinned in the garden, God said to Satan in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. In other words, Christ will destroy Satan and his work. And you shall bruise his heel. In other words, Satan will cause Jesus to suffer. So we know Satan also was influencing all the people who willed to crucify the Son of God. So we could point the finger at Satan. Or maybe 
you're thinking, well, it's really our sins. The reason why Jesus was nailed to the cross and suffered and died. 1 Corinthians 15.3 For I delivered to you, as the first importance, what I also delivered, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So this is all true. The Jewish leaders killed Jesus. The Jews killed Jesus. The Romans killed Jesus. Satan killed Jesus. Your sins is the reason Jesus was nailed to the cross. But ultimately, God willed to have Jesus killed. That was the ultimate reason. Isaiah 53.10 again. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush his own son. He has put him to grief. It was his will. The Hebrew word means to take the light in. Be pleased with. It's a desire. It was God's desire and pleasure to crush his only begotten son. This doesn't mean that God enjoyed, he enjoyed seeing his son suffer. We don't have a sadistic God. Dr. Warren Wiersbe said it pleased him. Why? To see the work of redemption completed. The sacrifice accepted and sin atoned for. Now a holy God in his grace can save undeserving sinners. Another scripture that clearly shows us that it was God's will and plan to put Jesus to death is found in Acts 4, 27 and 28. As I read before. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples, the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now again, people may have been used in carrying out the crucifixion of Jesus. We know that. But God was the one who spearheaded the whole plan. He was the one who designed it and spearheaded it. One commentator said it like this. People may be instruments of the servant's death, but it was ultimately Yahweh's will that he should suffer, die, and is resurrected back to life. You know, you hear something like this. That God was the one who ordained Christ. That it almost sounds blasphemous. Like God killed his own son. After all. God himself said in Exodus 23.7. Keep far from a false charge. And do not kill the innocent and righteous. For I will not acquit the wicked. And then his own ten commandments. Exodus 20.13. In the sixth commandment it says do not murder. And people have said. They would never believe in a God that would allow his own son to be killed. But we need to understand that God allowed his son to be killed so that you could be saved. But he also knew that his son would be restored. In his great sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter quoting Psalm 16 verse 10 in Acts 2.27, he said this, For you will not... Abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One seek corruption. Now, Peter was quoting David from the Psalms, and David was prophetically saying, Christ will be raised from the dead. Dr. John Davis, who will be here, not this Sunday, next Sunday, said this, The Father delights to crush the Son, knowing that it results in the redemption of many, and knowing that the resurrection brings an end to all the Son's suffering. 
And when you get up Sunday, we're going to talk about the end of the suffering of Christ, His glorious resurrection. God planned and allowed His Son to die, knowing His Son would be restored and many will be saved. That's a great plan. That's a plan that no religion in the world can ever come close to. Every religion in the world, I say this time and time again, every religion in the world says this, do your best and get to God. And Christianity says, I've done my best and I'm giving them to you. He planned and allowed his son to die. In Ezekiel 18.20 it says, the soul who sins shall die. That sounds like all of us. We all sinned. Jesus Christ took on your sin so he could die in your place. God treated Jesus as a sinner. He wasn't a sinful man, but he treated him as a sinner so he can now treat you like a righteous son or daughter. You know why they call it the good news now, don't you? Even though God is sovereign in salvation, that by no means clears the guilty. The man is still very much responsible for the death of Jesus. After Peter and John healed a man and were being questioned and threatened by the leaders of Israel, this is what he told them in response in Acts 4, 9 and 10. If we are being examined today concerning the good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and listen what he says, he, Peter's bold. He says, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. What is Peter saying? They hailed a man that were criticizing him. He said, listen, the one you crucified... That's the one who raised this, is raising this man back to good health. Another thing we need to understand in the work of redemption concerning all three persons of the Trinity, just as the Father sovereignly willed to crucify the Son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, willfully and voluntarily and sovereignly submitted to his Father's will and gave up his life. No one took it from him. John 10 17 and 18 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Discharge I have received from my Father. You see, God was in complete control of all the events that led up to the crucifixion. That's why when you're... Looking at the passion of Christ, if you ever look at it again, weep for yourselves, not Christ. That was a plan from all eternity. And I thank God. When I was getting this message together, I was thanking God how great he was. From all eternity, he had this plan that he's going to save John Verdi. Jesus completely and voluntarily did the will of the Father and the Holy Spirit strengthened him and empowered him to finish the work on the cross. We, we, we see the work of the cross is, was Trinitarian. It wasn't just one. It was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Godhead were involved, but it was the second person of the Trinity that actually did the work of redemption on the cross. And God the Father sovereignly willed it. So point one was God willed to murder Jesus. Point two, God willed to save you. John 3.16 again. For God so loved the world 
This is his will. This is why he willed to, to kill his own son. Because he so loved the world. He so loved you. He so loved me. He so loved every tribe, tongue, nation, ethnic group. He so loved us that he gave us his only begotten son. That if we believe in him, if we trust him, if we cling to him, we should not perish but have everlasting life. And then 1 John 4.9, he says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God so loved the sinner that he willed to send his son so that they could be saved from his eternal wrath. Once again, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, the will of God and the crucifixion, it doesn't mean we are innocent. No, it was our sin that God willed him to send his own son to suffer and die because he loved us that much. But what motivated Jesus to do what God willed? To suffer and die? To two things. Jesus' deep desire to obey his father. He had this deep, deep rooted desire to obey his father. John 4.34 Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you know what characterized Jesus? Was to do the will of his father. That was his passion. You know, we all have passions in our lives. But I pray if you're a Christian today, your passion is to love Christ and to obey Him. That was the passion and will of Christ. It was more important than physical food for Jesus. Jesus told the devil when being tempted in the wilderness, man does not live by bread alone. You know, Satan told him, turn the stones into bread since you're the son of God. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then in John 6.38, he said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You know, it's a good practice to get up in the morning and say, Father, thy will be done. And two, what motivated Jesus is Jesus did his father's will and endured the cross. You know why? Because of the joy. How could he have joy, suffering? Hebrews tells us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And here's the key. For who for the, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So you might ask the joy of what? The joy of completing the Father's will. The joy of his exaltation. He's sitting now at the right hand of God the Father. And the salvation of souls. That's what motivated Jesus Christ to come to suffer and die for you and me. So let me conclude here. There's a lot of theology here. What kind of application can I bring to you? How do we respond to this understanding that God sovereignly willed His Son to die on the cross and take a curse for you? How do we we apply that to our lives? If you're a Christian, or if you're not a Christian, I would highly recommend you think about what Christ has done for your sins and how God the Father sovereignly willed it. 
Every human being, whether they believe it or not, will stand before the judgment seat of God. For those that refuse to believe, eternal hell is waiting for them. But if the Lord is drawing you tonight to himself, trust in the eternal Son of God. Trust him, cling to him. Go to him if you don't know him. If you truly believe, eternal life will be yours because Christ took your hell for you. When you stand before God, if you believed in him and you trusted in him, he will not see your sins, but God will see his son Jesus Christ in you. For the believer, how do we respond to a message like this? Well, with a greater deep of deeper gratitude. With a greater, deeper worship. With a greater, deeper sense of feeling that there's a lost world out there. To give them the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we respond as Christians. We have a deep gratitude, a deep worship. And go tell a lost, dying world about Jesus Christ. Listen, we come in here, we're gathered here to be edified And we scatter to evangelize. And here's what I want to leave you with. We preach Christ and Him crucified. Amen. Let's get ready for the Lord's Supper and reflect on the death of Christ that was sovereignly willed by the Father. And as the ushers come forth and Kim leads us in song, let us do what Jesus said and remember His broken body and His shed blood. And if you're a genuine Christian, the elements we are about to partake, they're not the actual blood, body and blood of Jesus Christ. But as John Calvin said, there's a real presence of Jesus here by his Holy Spirit. There's a special grace here. Come on. I believe we can experience his grace in a special way as we meditate and partake of the elements. So let us also think about how God planned this from all eternity. It's not something that he just thought of and, oh, there's sinners down there. Let me send my son. This is planned from all eternity. That he sovereignly willed the crucifixion and Jesus carried out that plan and the Holy Spirit giving Jesus the power and strength to endure the pain and suffering and finally death. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the elements that are here that represent Jesus' broken body and his shed blood. God, I pray that every person here would realize what you've done and what you sacrificed on our behalf. As we take these elements, help us to recall to mind the death and the resurrection, the death and the yes and the resurrection of course of Jesus Christ Jesus name